You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So if you weren't here last week, we had um, my dear friend, Tamisha Tyler, Dr. Tamisha Tyler, talk about her dissertation, um, which is on Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Sower. And we talked a little bit about the history of the relationship between religion and art. And Tamisha laid some groundwork for prophecy and what art as prophecy looks like, specifically um, art that is seeing and naming what's in the culture as an act of prophetic action. And so I have two friends here who are wonderful visual performance artists, artists, not talk this morning, um, who do a lot of work that criticizes um, Christian nationalism, we'll just go with that. Christian nationalism, um, evangelical culture, things of that nature. But I want to start by reading, um, just want to open this up by reading two short poems from a book called Fight Evil with Poetry. Um, it's a collection that came out, I think it was four or five years ago. Um, I know about it because um, a friend of mine, Emily Joy, who does a lot, she started the Church 2 hashtag about sexual assault in the church um, and does a lot of work um, around that and around um, queer inclusion in the church and things like that, um, is a spoken word poet and she has a poem in here and an organization that we both work for, Level Ground here in LA, was hosting the opening of this um, book of poetry anthology in conjunction with another project that they were doing. So um, I just want to start with these two poems, if I can find them. I had them bookmarked and then, you know, you lose your place. Um, so the first one is called Banana Peel and it's by a poet named Kate Manning. And I think it's a good summation of the context of evangelicalism and the hypocrisy of evangelicalism. So without further ado, Banana Peel by Kate Manning. Soon after the news is reported, repeated across screens and pages, my pastor, the father figure who officiated our wedding has been having sex with a young woman in our church for over a year. I find a banana peel on the bathroom floor, not a whole peel, just the stem lying on the white tile of a public restroom. Did someone really peel a banana while seated on the toilet? How could this happen? Who would do something so gross? Yet someone has done this thing. My disgust doesn't keep the truth from being true. And then the other one. is a little bit more hopeful and it's kind of the intention that I kind of hope we leave this space with. It's called Booster Seat Prophet and it's by Josina Guest. A little voice from the back seat pipes up. My teacher said that the guy who killed Martin Luther King Jr. died in jail. She said it as it, she said it, it as if it was a good thing, but I don't think so. 
At the stop sign, hands gripping the wheel, heart slowly thawing, I look away from the unforgiving pavement. I turn to look at my child. Why is that, honey? Why isn't it good? Because jail doesn't always heal your heart. He didn't get a chance for his heart to heal before he died. And that's what he needed. So I'm sad about that. So as we are kind of going into this discussion, maybe we'll hold those two ideas in tension. Um, and I just want to start by introducing Astrid and Mike. And whoever wants to go first is going to give a quick bio of their relationship to art and their relationship to Christianity and evangelicalism. And then we'll have some questions and then we'll do our normal discussion at the end, okay? <laughs> okay, fine. I'll go first. Uh, I'm Mike. Uh, thanks uh, for hosting this conversation. And I'm glad to be back in this room again. It's been quite a few years since I came to an event here. Uh, so my full name is Gregory Michael Hernandez, and that's where you can find my art online. I've, uh, I grew up in the high desert of Southern California and and then came to and I grew up in the Southern Baptist churches and I was you know a very um, uh, I, I followed the rules and uh, I went to Bible college in Southern California um, to to bring the gospel to a hurting world as a visual artist um, I can't remember the name of the school I went to but I spent four years there and uh, and in that time, I got married, as you do, at 21 years old. I graduated in 1999 and moved to San Pedro, um, newly married, and started attending a evangelical church. And and when when my uh, then wife uh, had a baby in 2001, right before the attacks of 9/11 something jolted inside me pretty quickly uh, as I was opening my eyes to this world of religion and politics and the, the way the two collide. Um, I did some trips to Israel and, and the West Bank uh, that, that helped accelerate my confusion. Uh, and, and of course, as a visual artist, trying to make my way into the Los Angeles art scene, quickly realized like, there are LGBTQ people everywhere. And I never really grew up with gay people in the desert that I knew of. And um, I simply can't believe that, that there is hell for unbelievers or, or hell for sexual sin, or, you know, that I, I couldn't believe that, that, uh, that, that my friends were living in sin. And that caused a huge rift uh, in my marriage and in my community. Um, I was divorced by the time I was 27. I, um, I really turned away from religion for a while, even though I was internally still studying theology. So uh, it's been only in the last eight to 10 years that I've been comfortable coming back to the religious imagination. And, uh, and it showing up in my art in ways that at first I was pretty uncomfortable with, but I kind of had to do it, um, not knowing if my uh, art community would shun me and think I was a weirdo for going back there. Um, and thankfully I have people like Austri who are um, even weirder than me to help me feel comfortable 
Um, <laughs> so, uh, and now, of course, I realize a lot of the work I'm doing is on the cutting edge of what's happening in America today. And I'm pretty well suited to deal with it because I know it very well. So that's the um, quick version of my background uh, and, and the things that has shaped me as a visual artist. All right. So um, my name is Austri Swensrud, and I too very much grew up within um, evangelical and faith-based contexts and have a really, I mean, as Mike said, I think also have a very complex history in navigating those experiences. And like Mike said as well, for a while, as a practicing artist in Los Angeles as well, I was really kind of grappling with, or maybe it's more like I wasn't grappling with, um, all the ways in which sort of my formative experiences trying to navigate belief and meaning and truth and faith, how much those were impacting the ways that I saw the world and, um, made art and um it was only within probably for me about that same span of the last 10 years or so that i began to realize how much my own creative practice was really impacted by the formative experiences i'd had as a child growing up not just in sort of the generic evangelical context which i very much was a part of through my family's church but I also had grown up within what I now can see pretty clearly as being a kind of extremist cultic form of Christianity. Um, if anyone's familiar with Bill Gothard, I'm sorry, um, but that's what I grew up with. And that experience of kind of coming out of this incredibly entrenched and deeply held and sort of cloistered off community is something that I have now been thinking a lot about processing, seeing unfortunately so many resurgences of in the broader culture where it feels like the what I saw as the fringe extremism of my youth is now sort of infiltrating mainstream politics and evangelicalism even more than it was. So my own practice has very much become part of trying to understand and process issues of how meaning is formed, how beliefs and belief communities are formed, and kind of fundamentally grappling with the questions of how do we deal with the unknown or the unknowable, and what are those spaces and forms of comfort or security in seeking complete cohesive meaning or a totalizing community. Well, on the flip side, also seeing many of the things that are beautiful about community and imagination and meaning formation. And so, yeah, I very much find the context of my own past and my own current questions of how faith and meaning and community and belief structures operate in the world as being really formative to my own practice. And I think we'll be showing some images here in a bit of 
the works that I've made and that Mike's made as well to hopefully give a little more concrete context to a sort of abstract explanation here. Bob, can we pull up the images or we, do we need a minute? So while we're getting those up, um, my question for both of you is how do you think you, um, do you think that you see something and then respond or do you respond because you're saturated in seeing something? Does that make sense, that distinction? My brain's a little foggy this morning, so I don't know if I'm making clear statements. <laughs> I definitely have always, like I can look back on the past 20 years of my artwork and trace what I was thinking and who I was through the work. And when I had left, I can't remember the name of that college I went to. When I left college, I, might be a I was for having something. trouble. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. an acronym for something, something. I think. Yeah. Um, heard of it. You can look it up. <laughs> Bible College in LA, that's an yeah. acronym for something. Uh, when I left college, I was struggling as an artist with having concrete ideas that I wanted to express through the work. And I was like, shouldn't, shouldn't I be writing essays instead of making art, like isn't art supposed to be more of an intuitive process? So I was kind of at that time praying to like need art. So it wouldn't just be this tool that I employ in a didactic way to communicate truth. And you, I guess you could say that prayer was answered through personal turmoil and realizing, oh crap, I'm really lost. Uh, and, and so since then I have been making work where it's like, it's, it's really satisfying to, to feel things, to pursue visual information and realize, ah, that's, that's what I was doing. Like just a little further down the road to be able to say, you know, that's what I was, that's what I was thinking at the time, but couldn't say. So you maybe move from a propaganda approach to an embodied approach. Yes. Yeah, I feel very similarly actually about the way that my own practice functions where I think, I think trying to reverse engineer any artwork from sort of a message that you want to communicate in that case, I think maybe the essay approach is the better approach. A highly didactic work of art is rarely a satisfying aesthetic experience or really a good nuanced argument for a certain position. And so I think kind of in that like nuanced description of where the work comes from, I do think it tends to come out of just an experience of being a person who is very driven to seek out the information that I am curious about, who is taking things in and watching and looking. You know, I think part of being an artist is being a person who is curious and observant that in order to, I always tell my students this at a, 
I can't remember which college I teach at either. Um, but I always tell my students, you know, in order to make interesting art, you need to be an interested person and to follow the things that drive their curiosity and their thoughtfulness. And for me, a lot of that does have to do with interrogating what it means to have grown up in cultures of belief, to have transformed within those structures, to try to hold a complex and nuanced view of the world. And I think that's where art comes in as well, as that's the way in which, for whatever reason, I am motivated to communicate, to process thoughts. And I love the way that an artwork can sort of hold simultaneous complexity in perhaps a different way than a more didactic piece of writing would. I mean, there's a little bit of me that always wants to be like a journalist or a researcher, but I think fundamentally that desire for like nuance and complexity and sort of the mystery or unexpected potentiality that visual art can hold is something that keeps me coming back to that medium. Cool, thank you. Are we ready with the images? What, yeah? Okay, let's start then. Do you wanna start with your stuff? Sure. Okay, we're gonna start with Astrid's. Okay, there's a lot more detail than you can see um, in a projection than visual snob coming out for a moment. But um, so this image and the next few images in this sequence are from my most recent body of work titled The Receivers, which I showed last fall actually at the art space that Mike runs, um, Irenic Projects in Pasadena which is located in a church building. And it was really exciting to work with Mike in the development of this body of work. I had started making this series of drawings, this being one example um, that, so I was in the process of making these works when I had a studio visit with Mike and we started talking about doing the exhibition. And it was sort of a perfect, intersection of concept and venue. I was really excited to have the opportunity to get to show this work in a physical location that carried so much context and connotation being a church building. And that also had this massive aesthetic impact. You'll see more of the building in some of the later photos, but it's a very kind of traditional yet modern brutalist church building with absolutely amazing stained glass windows that really became a point of resonance in my drawings as well, which as you can see are highly patterned and decorative in their aesthetic form. But the title for this series of drawings that made up sort of the core of this exhibition is Wallpaper for Conspiracy Theorists. Um, so I was making this work in when did I start the work? Gosh, like I think I started this body of work. It was either like late 2020 or early 2021. Um, I guess late 2020 and kept making it into 2021. So 
Obviously, we were starting to hear a lot about conspiracy theories, disinformation, misinformation, um, and its impacts on culture and society. Like, I've always been really interested in sort of cultic movements and new religious movements and utopian communities and dystopian communities and looking at all of these niche belief systems. Um, I went down the rabbit hole but not in a bad way, I hope, uh, for researching QAnon before everyone else had heard of QAnon. And I'm really sad that my own niche interest is now everybody's problem. But I was thinking a lot about like how these systems spread and thinking a lot about the way that so many of these conspiracy theories and these just twisted versions of a perception of reality come from sort of an over-interpretation of meaning, that there is this desire that nothing can be a coincidence, nothing can be random, that everything is somehow meaningful or controlled. And so there is an avoidance of this discomfort of the unknown, even as there are these kind of apocalyptic scenarios being envisioned through these movements, it's somehow more comfortable to believe in apocalypse that you're going to win than to encounter a complex situation in which there may not be easy answers. And so with all that milling around in my mind and I'd been researching and reading a lot about contemporary and historical conspiracy movements and belief systems and looking at a lot of like esoteric imagery, but also the way that those forms of imagery had influenced like sci-fi and fantasy and fiction. I just started to kind of out of that milieu, going back to what we were just talking about, started making works that were not so much made with a fixed outcome in mind as an attempt to just kind of put on the page and create these visual diagrams or maps kind of that seek to look like interpretable systems or images, but that kind of constantly allied an exact interpretation. So for example, in this image, we have the two towers, which I was kind of thinking about in relation to like the two pillars of masonry and the way that the masons have been so much a formative part of a lot of American conspiratorial thinking. We also have our little like Masonic floor at the bottom. In the center, we have what kind of looks like a chakra um map or diagram we have a couple all-seeing eyes and eternal flames or things that sort of look like them if you want to move forward in the images that would be great so yeah each image is kind of made of this amalgamation of visual reference points that touch on as I was saying, like esoteric symbolism and diagramic systems that touch on sort of these fantasy realms. Each image also features at least one eye, as I was thinking about the way that meaning is formed through looking, but also that sort of paranoia is formed within the sense of being looked at. 
Um, I just want to say, as I put my handmade curator hat on, um, that these are pencil drawings oh, thank you. on paper. They are about this size tall, and they're so finely done. I mean, you can tell that the, the, the pencil work is so soft, uh, so carefully blended, that part of the act of looking at these works for the observer is you get a sense of like, oh my God, Austria, are you okay? When you sat there working <laughs> on these for months, like you must, you know, you look at the detail work, which you, again, you can't quite appreciate here. Like that purple blob in the middle, it's not just purple. There is like, there's work yeah, in there. It's a little checkerboard pattern. It's like a pixelated image. Yeah, so, so the act of looking at these, and then as you bounce from image to image and start to create your own story, you do start to feel this conspirator, like pattern making and finding pattern. I'll let you continue. Yes, thank you, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I realized that's a good contextualizer that, yeah, these are all colored pencil and graphite on paper. And part of the process is to almost like disguise the hand that made them. So, so many people thought these were maybe digital images or prints. And I'm interested in that flip too, between sort of the handmade and focused and the sort of digital replication. I actually like the two of the same image. You should have done two of the same image. Oh, next time. Another how many months? <laughs> if you want to move forward to the next image as well. That was my favorite of the bunch. But I'm interested in the way that each drawing sort of gives enough familiar signs, symbols, images to latch onto, but then any sense of narrative or constructed meaning within them really happens within the eye of the viewer, because foundationally, each symbol or distorted symbol or sign or signifier is there to you know, isn't there for a particular preordained reason that I put in place. Um, and at the on the one hand, you could see that as somewhat of a cynical gesture. I also think there's something really, I hope that there's a sense of kind of humor and hopefulness within the work as well, that there's something about that creative impulse to imagine new possibilities that's very positive or generative, but that, um, yeah, needs to be held in tension with what is actual or true or real. Um, we can move on to the next image. Yeah, this one was titled The Receiver, and this one was made after my first site visit to Ironic Projects. And the symbol at the bottom of like the radio tower receiver form is something that actually came from the site itself because one of the stained glass windows in the church space is actually a representation of a radio tower receiver. If I remember correctly, it's kind of pointing back to like Pasadena's history of religious broadcasting and- Yeah, and Carl Baker, who's here, uh, is, uh, is was the pastor of that church. Uh, and he found a booklet in the church office of what the stained glass windows were meant to represent. And we were all drawn to the transmitter receiver. Um, I think it's titled the receiver in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was about how, you know, um, what is faith in an age of communication happening through electronic and radio waves and how LA was one of the first hubs for 
the gospel going out through radio. Um, and so when I remember when Austria and I were looking around the space talking about our show, she's like, oh my God, that window, that says so much about what I've been thinking. I'm, I might just dedicate my show to this window. Yes. <laughs> and, and, I, and so in and that way, <laughs> this was, even though these were drawings in a frame on the wall, I considered this show the most site specific show we had done up until that point because Austria was responding to the architecture and and the way her inner worlds were working on paper reflected the 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 worlds that we're all swimming in it reflected the architecture of the space yeah and that that moment of seeing that window really became a key to sort of tying together the various themes that i'd been trying to get at with this body of work which ultimately the entire show became titled The Receivers. And I was really interested in that idea of the receiver as this vessel, but also every human as a receiver of information. And especially the idea of people going to a sacred space or a space of worship, a space where you are primed to like, take something in to have be receptive to whatever kind of unseen experience you are hoping for in that situation. Um, if you want to move to the next image, that um, image then led to the two sculptural works in the show, my receiver towers, which are made out of fireplace matches um, that are then covered or embellished by tin foil and steel wire and then one is with copper leaf and copper wire and so they become these kind of like ad hoc receiver devices with the use of copper and tin foil i was thinking once again about these bronze masonic pillars breaking them down into their elements you know masons choose to use bronze because it combined tin which was like a moon element and copper which was a sun element and so you have balance and you can read all this esoteric meaning into the materials if you want to but i was also thinking about tinfoil hats and so i gave one of the receivers a little tinfoil hat um and they sat there then in the sanctuary space where you can see one of the large dramatic stained glass windows and i really loved the resonance of these objects which could looked like they were meant to pick up some sort of like electrical signal but that fundamentally their actual ability to be charged would be a lit match that then destroys the entire structure quite rapidly i really want to build more and set them on fire i haven't done that yet but um yeah so i should go quickly here but if you want to move forward to the next image the last thing i kind of want to talk about here is another related project that um, actually my husband, Quinn, who's in the audience here, and myself did as a performance during the run of the show. And this was a performance that comes out of our ongoing collaborative project called Semitropic Spiritualists, which I could talk about for a long time, but I won't. Um, the very quick version is it's based in sort of LA's history as a space of like, spiritual innovation should we say all the history of religious movements and cults and utopian groups that this city and region are 
so loaded with when you really start looking under the surface. And the semi-tropic spiritualists were an actual spiritual community that was located in LA in the early 1900s. We've taken on their name since most of the history of this group has disappeared. And for the last 10 years, we've been doing an ongoing series of performances and installations and interactive artworks of various kinds that explore kind of the dynamics of belief, believing communities. And so this particular piece that we did in conjunction with um, my exhibition was called the Semi-Tropic Spiritualist Apocalypse. And we became sort of like street corner preachers. Um, you can see us there standing amidst these theatrical flame sets um, surrounded by fire with the projection of our large um, diagram. If you move on to the next photo, yeah, there you can see a slightly squashed version of the um, actual image, but through our performance, we were kind of talking about the history of various like apocalyptic movements and failed prophecies of the end throughout history. And then through our own performance created a sort of anti-apocalypse ritual as we tried to explore the dynamics of the ways in which so many of these kind of apocalyptic groups or movements almost inadvertently end up creating those conditions of the end um, in their fervor to see it come. So that's a very quick version of that piece. Um, I think I have just one more image here, which it comes from the most recent body of work that I've been doing. But if you want to put that one up, yeah. So the internal worlds are just getting stranger and stranger and starting to make you like the first person video game player protagonist of these incomplete esoteric worlds. But uh, that's all I'll say for now. Thank you. Do you want to talk a little bit about the parody aspect of what you guys do with semi-tropical spiritualists? As in, as in, well, at least that performance is very was very parody of yeah this kind of apocalyptical street preacher, evangelical kind of mindset. And you right. only have you also have your own liturgy that you created. Yes. So yeah, the semi-tropic spiritualists. We've really because there's so little information about the actual group, we have over the years developed our own kind of paralleling system that is sometimes deeply sincere and sometimes a kind of subtly humorous, I hope, um, like, as you said, sort of parody or replication of these sort of over, overly invested in systems. So within that performance, we had actually sort of structured it around all of the symbology and history that we've built for ourselves and often tried to portray in a very positive light through previous performances. And this one became a kind of deconstruction or dismantling of our own system, just showing the ways that even sort of the best intentioned belief structures or community models can be sort of turned on their head and become something oppressive or, yeah, sort of exclusionary or destructive. 
which is a little bit, if you were here last week, what we talked about with Tamisha, as the parable of the sower progresses and that narrative progresses, you start to get into the complications of how any religious structure be, can become off the rails or problematic or harmful or challenging. And so you guys are embodying that in their um, performative action with this group. Yeah, and I think that's always kind of the note we want to strike, which is not like a dismantling or a saying that there's no good versions of these things, but just to that sort of constant state of self-criticality and an awareness of the ways that it's such a fine line often between a, a community that is supporting one another and a community that can turn into something insular or oppressive. Very easy. So are we gonna move on to Mike's stuff? I just wanna say, I think many of those could become stained glass windows. Yes, I, they, one of the things we like about the church where Carl and I have been doing our art program uh, is that the stained glass windows are evocative of things. Like, you know, you can see the receiver tower, but they're not didactic. And um, yeah, I think your work would make great stained glass. Yeah, do you know any Something good grants to get me hooked up with a stained glass worker? I like <laughs> this idea. Yeah. Really cool. Gotta look into that. So uh, this, this, I'm gonna show two bodies of work that came out of my sort of renewed interest in, in the religious imagination. This first one is from 2016, 2017. When I returned to theology in roughly 2012 and I started going back to reading um, people like Walter Brueggemann who I've always been a fan of since I was in college uh, and started following Trip Fuller and his homebrewed Christianity. Um, I had known Barry Taylor, if some of you know Barry Taylor. Uh, I was attending his church in like 2003 was sort of my like uh, my gateway. Barry Taylor was my gateway. Um, and so, so in, in 2016, I had been thinking about Brueggemann and the Ten Commandments and Moses. And I was like, I really kind of want to rewrite the Ten Commandments, being that Christians are always so quick to say, why aren't the Ten Commandments in every, you know, um, courthouse or whatever? I'm like, do you really get what those Ten Commandments might implicate you for so so i was like but isn't that so weird to rewrite the ten commandments as a contemporary artist um people might think i've gone back to my christian roots they might you know i was really embarrassed but then with the way the 2016 election turned out and the way i saw my christian heritage of evangelicals falling right in line i was shocked i guess i shouldn't have been but i as many of us were i was i was shocked and it took me a little while to figure out the mechanics of what in the faith system allowed that to happen and that's when i realized i have to do this 10 commandments project and risk embarrassment and and it actually went oh okay uh this was created for something called the joshua tree annual which was a group show out in joshua tree and I called this piece Decalogue Chapel. It's, it's designed off of a um, structure that, that I use often. It's meant to be a chapel-like um, 
structure, but without walls, uh, you know, skeletal. I want it to be a rough framework. You can go to the next slide. Uh, so in this way, it was sort of a reversal of a church where the walls are see-through and the windows are, are, are solid. So the, the, the windows are, are these 10 concrete forms that I painted on. And uh, there's, there's one for each commandment. And, um, and the images on the, on the concrete are of locations in, in Southern California that are kind of my haunts. Uh, you can go to the next slide. So in Joshua Tree, as part of this piece, we did a, a series of um, sort of performance, sermon type performances where we created a liturgy. And it was really, this was April of 2017. So people were still reeling from the election and they actually really appreciated a religious response to the election. Uh, and, you know, I was very careful not to make this like too Christian or anything. And my collaborator, Scott Young, who's standing in the blue shirt there in the middle, he, he was basically the master of the liturgy. And, uh, and, and I'd been working, he was a professor of mine um, when I was in college. And so we, we kind of did this piece together. Uh, you can go to the next slide. And even though it's too small for me to read here for so the front of commandment number six is image of a cemetery in Los Angeles and on the back it says at the top do not kill uh, and then within a few sentences I explain what killing might look like in our in our contemporary context um, and I was sort of modeling you know when Jesus says, you've heard it say, do not murder, but when you look at someone with anger, you're, you know, that's, that's on the same parallel. So I was, I was following in that vein. And I was really calling out just creating like a progressive um, uh, version of, of what, it, what it means to live neighborly in, in our contemporary context. Uh, the next slide is of commandment number eight do not steal. Uh, that's a homeless encampment on the, on, the, on the front of the tombstone. And I say tombstone because these are the actual size and shape of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery. So I wanted to connect them to US history. Uh, and do not steal. Oh gosh, I, I should have brought my own because uh, I can't remember what I wrote. It's really good. You'll, you'll have to go online and, and check it out. <laughs> um, but when I showed these at my alma mater um, in 2018, uh, I ended up having a nice chat with the president and provost because their office was blowing up with complaints. And it's because I mentioned abortion and said that women are not society's baby making slaves and that you should trust women to give life. Um, and I mentioned homosexuality and uh, under the, you know, do not commit sexual sin, sexual manipulation. Um, and so I expanded that into othering is sexual sin and um, forcing people to, to fit within your, uh, your prescription of what human sexuality is, is sexual sin. So 
clearly the place where I went to school lost their shit over that. And, um, and it's funny because the, the president, we were standing inside of my structure and he was, I was explaining why I'm going there with this. And, and he was like, Ooh, like, I, I really see what you're saying, but, um, we, we have funders that will lose it over this and, um, you gotta take the artwork down or erase what you wrote on the back. And I had told myself before the show that if they make me take this, you know, if they tell me they don't like it, I'm taking the whole thing out. But then after chatting with him and I kind of understood his perspective and I didn't demonize him for, I, I understood the bind he was in. I was like, okay, like if, if this place can't handle what I wrote as a provocation, um, as something to wrestle with, then I'll erase it. And so um, I took a sander to the back of the paintings and just made them live for a month with something that they that was erased because they couldn't conceptually handle it. Um, and that's the last time I've shown there. So next slide is of my newest latest project called Akita Altar. And this was created in response to the 20th anniversary of the attacks 9-11. Uh, I realized that I 9-11 was a turning point for me, uh, conceptually and spiritually, religiously. Uh, and I wanted to create a bookend um, of, uh, of my personal journey in that time. But I also had some things I wanted to say. And so this Akada altar, Akada is the Jewish word for uh, the binding, uh, the binding of Isaac by Abraham. And that story always troubled me growing up. And it's been in the past few years that I kind of felt like I had an interpretation of that story that I could live with, uh, one that I liked. And so I consider that story to be God's existential crisis, where God realizes that uh, God can't control humanity. Uh, God tries all kinds of things to control humanity, confusing language, the flood, gene pool manipulation through the flood, starting over with Moses, like it's not working. God, God, the control freak, can't force perfection onto the human race. And it's with Abraham that God goes for the gullet, literally. And, and what's interesting in Genesis is God kind of disappears after Abraham and Isaac, um, not much of an agent throughout the rest of Genesis. And so in my interpretation, it's, it's when we get to Moses that God, that Moses resurrects God, um, reinvents God to be an emancipator instead of a control freak. So I take a very liberal, um, playful interpretation of the text. Uh, I think that Christianity gets itself in trouble because it, it takes Jewish traditions and tries to um, make certitudes out of it and you know, like Walter Brueggemann says, um, Jews don't like certitudes. Um, and it, it leads to final interpretations and final interpretations lead to final solutions. So that's what my Decalogue Chapel was about. That's what my retelling of the Abraham and Isaac story is about. And I think that the Abraham and Isaac story as it functions in Christianity really does lead to um, I think that story could, could, is a root of religious fanaticism of all stripes. And that's why I connect that story to 
and I connect that story to what's happening now with Christian nationalism and QAnon. Uh, there's there's this sense that like if you're if you're doing something holy and ultimate, well then you're you're allowed to do the most harsh things. Uh, and and again on my website you can um, yeah you can go ahead to the next images. Um, this was. Uh, this structure was hiked to the top of a very remote location in the high desert in 29 Palms. And uh, Carl Baker helped me hike it up there and bled for it. Uh, I had about six friends that it took two weeks to hike this thing up there. I'd only stayed up there for three days. Uh, and then I did a sermon performance at the top, which um, I can send you a link to if you'd like to see it. You should, uh, it's very good. Yeah, it's very <laughs> it made good. me cry. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, next slide is um, a still from the from the video of my uh, sermon, and I think is that the last slide. Okay, one more. And and then I just showed this sculpture at Vielmetter Gallery in Los Angeles, uh, where it was um, part of this greenhouse, and so it was kind of nice to see this structure which is meant to be Abraham's altar. And you can see in the structure remnants of uh, the Twin Towers. Uh, two of the walls are modeled after the Twin Towers. One wall is modeled off of a prison cell. Um, and uh, so it was, it was satisfying to see it um, off the mountain and in a proper exhibition where it becomes this relic of an, of an event that happened. And um, you know the action to me, artwork is um, an event that takes place. Um, so so Carl saw the event and a few others saw the event, but then the the sculpture, the the paintings, the things that I make afterwards are merely um, pointing to the event. Um, and so to me, the the art object is not so precious. Um, I'm a little bit more interested in what what the art object points to or what I was trying to get at. There's almost an ephemeral nature to what's central to you for your thesis. Yeah, and I, I like the tradition of land art, but I don't like the tradition, the part of land art where everything is so temporary and large and manly and tearing up the desert and plopped there forever for someone to deal with. I like, I like bringing something into a place and then having it go away. And nature has been a huge part of a lot of your pieces too, because you have those doors that you bury. Yeah, and being that I grew up in the desert and the wilderness has so much religious and, you know, uh, Hebrew scriptures are all about wilderness and um, exile um, and Brueggemann. And these, this is all my wheelhouse of, of, of the way I think and, um, and the context of my religious imagination. Thanks. Um, one of the things that you both do, I think, really well is, is highlight places through your work, but places that have more meaning, and they're almost like a Salman Rushdie story, where there's multiple layers to the place, and if you know, you can know levels of it, but there's more deep levels the further you get down to it. Yeah, I think... Um, I didn't go into a lot of our semi-tropic spiritualist practice, but just hearing, Mike, the way you talk about your work and this kind of going to a place and 
sort of creating a ritual or a moment or an object there has very much been a part of our semi-tropic spiritualist project. We have gone to the desert a couple times and set up outposts um, for very similar reasons with that idea of like the desert as this place of kind of experimental community or almost this blank state of visualizing some new possibility and thinking about the histories of desert visionaries, whether they're building, you know, integratrons because the Venusians gave a vision of a new battery for humanity or, you know, kind of building eccentric architecture or starting a community off the grid. We've also traveled um, to the site of former utopian communities and cult compounds and created pieces there that, as you were saying, were really about dealing with these sort of layers of history and information within a space. I agree that that art making is this tool for exploration that, um, you know, I, I think to be stuck in a studio trying to come up with ideas is pretty hard. It doesn't doesn't work for me. Uh, and so it's really about engaging with space, engaging with people and ideas. And, and, you know, we're living in a time where so many of us feel stuck within the ruts of, of the way it's supposed to be, or, or you know, our structures are, are really stuck. And, and we're really at a time where people are saying, well, why are we so stuck? Why are we so, you know, um, we think that we can't imagine outside of capitalism or outside of of, of what we've inherited. Um, and if we as artists or people of faith or, you know, don't take up the reins and, and start moving this cart somewhere else, then the conspiracy theorists are gonna do it for us. And that's where, that's where I felt a huge responsibility of I can't turn away from religion and my heritage. I'm not about to let it go that direction. Yeah, not without some pushback. Yeah definitely that grabbing. I have an undergrad professor who said, you know, this is my like Christian education professor, said, you know, the world may be going to hell in a handbasket, but it's our job to grab it and pull it the other direction and imagine new ways of being. And for, you know, like a evangelical university, he's quite, he was quite progressive. I think our whole school is, because right now they're fighting the board and the president. Um, because they're so anti, I, they're so against my undergrads. Um, the whole school body minus the board and the president are for queer inclusion and they're suing, they're asking the attorney general of Washington state to sue and remove the board because they are obstructing um, the progressive movement at the school. So I'm sure you may have seen the picture of all the students at SPU shaking hands with the president with their LGBTQT flags, because he's the puppet president. And I was watching that live because my uh, niece, uh, brother's uh, oldest daughter just graduated from SPU. And I was like, what is happening here? There's rainbows, is it, is it Noah's Ark Remembrance Day or is something? Nope. <laughs> Or is something else happening well, here? The school's now suing the AG for discrimination. Yeah, and places like my alma mater are, I'm sure, seeing that and freaking out. And so, uh, yeah, uh, it's going to be very interesting. And 
Uh, and I am happy to say I saw this coming a long time ago. Oh, yeah. It's going to be very interesting to see how things shake out in Christian universities. Uh, well, and we've been seeing it because places like Pepperdine have slowly just said, okay, we're going to follow Title IX and we're not going to publicize that we're doing that, but we're going to let all of our students be involved. And even schools like Azusa Pacific down the street have let their conservative board members have walked away. And so they've been able, they walked away because of money, not because of LGBTQT stuff, but that allowed more space for the school to be more open. So we're seeing two different ways of handling it, sticking your head in the sand and doubling down on evangelicalism as the moniker of racist, sexist, homophobic, Christian nationalism, or we're seeing schools being like, we don't wanna do that. We're gonna be support our you know, LGBTQT students. We're gonna support our minority students. And hopefully, yeah, it just feels like movement. kind of what has come out in the country as text instead of subtext sort of over the last six years or so is just making these lines in the sand extremely stark. And a lot of the people and institutions that I think have just been trying to like ride this tenuous middle ground are hopefully kind of having to confront like the actualities under these sort of theological constructions that have often not been questioned. So into that, we're gonna go to our question and answer period because I see a question. Hi, thank you. I was, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember. I didn't get your name at the beginning. Oh, Austri. Okay, I was so enthralled by what you made and I'm, I'm obsessed thank with you. the spiritualist movement also and it's so interesting and so overlooked and, and I loved it. And as I've stepped away from my evangelical fundamentalist and Pentecostal, which is kind of like quasi spiritualist uh, background, I've kind of like sort of let myself dip a toe more into like the esoteric sort of element, but being skeptical, not trusting charisma, was such a part of my being able to be free of the really harmful things that I was part of. It's so hard for me to balance learning more about and just being curious and open to sort of the esoteric uh, element, but also still maintaining my hold to the skepticism. I don't want to, you know, give into these sort of ideas that, how do you balance that? How do you make that work with your art? Yeah. It's a really interesting question or way to frame it. And, you know, I think to me, what has always really guided my own curiosity in these areas after kind of being able to take that step back and instead of being inside, exclusively inside the system I grew up with, being able to, to me, what has been really important is being able to sort of step back and look at the frameworks, the structures, the historical contexts, the sort of reasons that belief systems have propagated or built themselves. And as I have been just kind of expanding my purview beyond what I grew up with, I have found like these esoteric traditions really interesting as just other models for how belief works. And I think I've been drawn to kind of the more like 
esoteric occult like occult as secret knowledge not as like scary devils or something um but been interested in those because they have such a visual presence and i think you know evangelicalism has not had a great visual history and so there's a reason for that <laughs> exactly and i think the ways that like belief systems are made manifest in visual form has really drawn me to using sort of esoteric symbology as motifs or metaphors but through that kind of critical lens of I want to understand how this works. I think too, those have come into my work over the last few years, seeing sort of the rise in like interest in new age and mysticism and the esoteric and the occult almost as like a fashion trend or like I was recently listening to a podcast that went on to a deep dive of new age TikTok and just the ways that there's still this seeking for spiritual meaning, but then seeing the ways that even if the beliefs might be different, the structures and systems are underneath underlying a lot of this resurgence in sort of the spiritual and esoteric are oftentimes the very same systems, like seeing that, you know, kind of evangelicalism as one pipeline to I keep bringing up QAnon, but one point pipeline to that and like sort of the new age wellness esoteric world as like an equal pipeline that makes for some very strange political bedfellows and so i'm interested in those overlaps and overlays i would say as a scholar who studies that stuff um that the more you start looking at the histories and the the hierarchies and the structures most most things that we would consider cults in the colloquialism that as a scholar you describe as high control groups have similar markers we can identify groups that generally will probably go off the rails based on four or five indicators generally a charismatic male leader generally that charismatic male leader has high control of the group and has a malformed attachment with the group and generally they at some point decide that they can sleep with everybody else's spouses or something along or control some aspect of what everybody else is doing and those are if you research these communities, you find that those patterns just play out over and over. So even if it's a political group or a non-religious group, you're still going to see the same indicators. And that's, I think, the thing that keeps you skeptical is the more you start reading about how similar they are, um, the more you're like, oh, yeah, I don't want to. This feels too uncomfortable. I'm not going to go there. And this feels very much like this. I'm not going to go there. Any more questions for our artists. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, for uh, both of you, uh, what resources ha did you have from your childhood growing up in these sort of like visually bereft spaces that helped you become artists as adults? What, what were some of the resources that actually kind of became helpful to you as creators? For me, I think I just took so much from the landscape of the desert 
it, uh, it was, I was always aware of my body in space and uh, the ground, the sky. Um, and then when you go into church in the desert, you're in a chapel like this, which closes you in um, and starts to, it, it, you know, the architecture uh, starts to mimic what's going on in your mind. And so being that I was always very spatially in tune with my body and its environment, uh, image came second. Even though I, I started my studies as an artist drawing things and, and I went to school for painting, it was really the, the dimensional that, that was at my core. So I, I guess I was just aware at an early age of, of this idea of truth and where does it come from and how does it get translated and what are the ways, what are the, the tools of translation that get passed down and, and, and what's our responsibility in using those tools for our own context as opposed to just applying, applying the rules onto your fellow humans. Uh, so it was really just this, you know, I, I could relate. Um, I, it, yeah, it was, I guess it was, it was bodily for me. Yeah, for me, I mean, I've just always been a person who makes things like my favorite activity as a child was drawing and some things never change, I guess. And for all the complicated feelings I have about my years growing up and the ways I was educated. You know, one thing I can really commend my parents for was they always really encouraged my artistic and creative side. And so while I didn't have a lot of specific education in that area, I just kind of was given free reign to make things. And I was just constantly drawing and creating at that point with no sort of like conceptual structure, but really developing a love of color and pattern and shape and the act of drawing and making. And going into my undergrad, I went to a different um, evangelical college in this one in Minnesota. But I went in as a graphic design major because I was like, well, I like making things. I guess that's how you get a job. But pretty quickly take, took my first art history class and just felt like the world opened up to me in a way that made sense like it had never had before. And my takeaway from that class was like, oh, I understand the history of how people think because I can see it in visual form and I can see art as this conversation about what are our cultural values, what are our cultural meanings? And, you know, kind of once that clicked in, I switched my major um, to fine art, much to the slight worry of my family. But um, again, I was encouraged to follow the thing I was passionate about. And I had one professor at my college in particular who just really, saw potential within me and like gave me kind of a crash course in contemporary art and meaning making and I never looked back from there it really became 
the way in which I could process the world and make meaning and have the types of conversations I was interested in having. And, you know, despite Mike thinking that my drawing process looks crazy, don't, uh, I might have similar feelings about your construction process. <laughs> but to me, there's nothing more soothing than just sitting there Too for shade. like six hours shading really slowly. It's the only way I feel calm. That and petting cats. Thank you both. Um, so for the interest of time, we're gonna close up our conversation here, but they are both available online through your websites. Um, and we will post some of that on our social media. So if you wanna get a hold of either of them or follow their art pieces or where they're showing, please do. And thank you all for being here. Thank, thank you all. You so and thank much. you, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse.